0: The people of this nation have spoken. They've delivered us a clear victory. And I'm humbled by the trust and confidence you've placed in me.
1: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Opposition Cast. I'm Nigel Fletcher. And once again, we're looking at the US presidential elections this week. In the previous episode, recorded before polling day, the outcome of the election seemed open to question. And indeed, on election night itself, it appeared in doubt whether Joe Biden had won or whether Donald Trump would be re-elected for a second term. Trump won Florida, and as the results began to be counted, He seemed to be doing better than some had predicted. But it soon became clear that those early results were giving a misleading impression of the outcome of the election. As votes continued to be counted, particularly the postal votes, the so-called mail-in ballots, it was increasingly apparent that Joe Biden enjoyed a substantial advantage amongst voters who had cast their votes in that way. Unsurprisingly, given that Donald Trump had encouraged his supporters not to use postal ballots. In many of the swing states, including Pennsylvania, those votes were not able to be counted before election day, and so there was a delay in ensuring that they could be added to the totals. This meant that the early results from those people who had voted during the day had given the impression that Donald Trump was ahead. Only when those other votes started to be counted was the true picture becoming clear. And so political nerds, myself included, became addicted to watching CNN's live coverage with their magic wall of data showing the votes for Biden gradually, painstakingly ticking up in those swing states. And in some states, for example in Arizona where Joe Biden had enjoyed a substantial advantage over Donald Trump, watching as Donald Trump's votes gradually ticked up and closed the gap with Biden. Finally, on Saturday afternoon, CNN was ready to make a crucial projection.
0: CNN projects Joseph R. Biden, Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States, winning the White House and denying President Trump a second term. We're able to make this projection because CNN projects Biden wins Pennsylvania, the former vice president, in his third run for the highest office, pulling off a rare defeat of a sitting commander-in-chief. With this victory, Kamala Harris is set to become the first woman and the first person of color to be the vice president. Again, CNN projects Joe Biden will become the 46th president of the United States.
1: The announcement was greeted as you would imagine by celebrations by Biden supporters and indeed by Kamala Harris, the now vice president elect of the United States, who was caught on camera phoning her running mate to congratulate him. We did it, we did it, Joe. You're going to be the next President of the
0: United States.
1: <laughs> so that was it. The election had been called. This was the point at which, in a normal election, we would expect the losing candidate to telephone the winner, congratulate them, and concede the election. We would then have a winner's acceptance speech and a concession statement from the loser. But this was not a normal election, and Donald Trump is not a normal president. We already knew that there would be no concession forthcoming from him. In the days since the election, as the votes continue to be counted, he issued forth a stream of tweets and made a number of public statements, including from the White House briefing room, making unsubstantiated allegations of voter fraud, calling the postal ballots... Uh, invalid, and claiming that he had in fact won the election. For once, there was no room for equivocation on the part of the American broadcast media. This is how CNN's chief political correspondent, Dana Bash, and their White House correspondent, Abby Phillip, reacted to Trump's statement from the White House briefing room.
0: As he was talking, I was trying to reach out to some SENIOR REPUBLICANS TO ASK WHEN THE INTERVENTION IS GOING TO HAPPEN, BECAUSE THIS ISN'T JUST PARTISAN, THIS ISN'T JUST DANGEROUS, IT'S NONSENSICAL, IT'S ILLOGICAL, AND THERE'S SO MANY THINGS TO SAY. ONE OF THE the THINGS THAT I WAS THINKING ABOUT LISTENING TO HIM NOW IS HOW MUCH WE LISTENED TO HIM FOR THE PAST, YOU KNOW, FOUR, FIVE MONTHS, TELLING HIS VOTERS DO NOT VOTE EARLY, IT'S FRAUDULENT. And now we sort of suspected it then. Now we know the reason for that, so that he could have this moment in the White House briefing room, so he could say that the votes that are coming in by mail are fraudulent. And the reason is because he knew that Democrats, because we are in a pandemic, were more apt to vote early by mail and to not want to risk their their health and sometimes their lives by going to vote uh, in person. He set—it's a setup. He set the country up. He set his supporters up for a moment that like this, which is completely false. And you said sad. It—it is sad. I mean, I'm not an emotional person, and I'm having trouble kind of keeping it together after listening to the president of the United States saying what he just said.
1: This president clearly knows that this is not going to end well for him or he believes that and he's trying to take the rest of the country down with him. Yeah. He's trying to take yeah. the voting system down with him, the democratic process down with him. And beyond being completely selfish, it also is just wrong. And as you said, where is the intervention? I don't know where it is, and it probably should have happened months ago mm-hmm. because as you said, Dana, he already told us he was going to do this. He's already said months ago, the only way I could lose this election is if there were widespread, massive fraud, which we knew was not going to happen. CNN's Abby Phillip there. And indeed, the signs had been there for a very long time, not just months in advance, but years in advance. Last week, I played a clip of Hillary Clinton from one of the presidential debates between her and Donald Trump in 2016, in which she warned about his unsuitability for office. But she also warned about something else as well. And that was his attitude to losing. This was the warning she gave in that debate in 2016.
0: You know, every time Donald thinks things are not going in his direction, he claims whatever it is is rigged against him. He lost the Iowa caucus. He lost the Wisconsin primary. He said the Republican primary was rigged against him then Trump University gets sued for fraud and racketeering. He claims the court system and the federal judge is rigged against him. Uh, there was even a time when he didn't get an Emmy for his TV program three years in a row and he started tweeting that the Emmys were rigged. Should have gotten it. This, <laughs> this is a mindset. This is, this is how Donald thinks. And it's funny, but it's also really troubling.
1: Hillary Clinton there, predicting with surprising accuracy four years ago how Donald Trump was likely to react to losing an election. And now as we're seeing that play out, and he is indeed questioning the veracity of it, we're in a rather peculiar situation where Joe Biden has, by common consent, won the election. He's installed as president-elect and is starting to make appointments to his administration and his transition team. He's receiving calls from world leaders congratulating him and discussing policy. And yet Donald Trump remains in the White House, in office, until Inauguration Day on the 20th of January, and still refusing to concede that he's lost the election. He still has all the powers of the presidency and the ability to issue executive orders. With a president who has shown no sign of conforming to constitutional norms and arguably now has nothing at all to lose, that's potentially quite a problem. This was one of the issues that I discussed with my guest this week. Dr Richard Johnson is lecturer in US politics and policy at Queen Mary University of London, and I began by asking him about this issue of the long transition between the election at the beginning of November and the presidential inauguration on January the 20th. It's something that is often referred to as a lame duck period of time for a defeated president. And Richard has written about how it is a major flaw in the US system to allow this lame duck period in office. As I suggested to him, the current situation would rather seem to prove that point.
2: I think it does. I mean, I've written about lame ducks both at the state and and the federal level, and we've seen some recent examples at state level elections where um, there's been a, a new governor, say a democratic governor has been elected uh, over a Republican governor and the state legislature has taken upon itself to basically change the, the, the state constitution to limit the ability of the governor to govern uh, effectively. Um, so in the states, this can actually be a very radical period of structural change Um, in the way that the state is governed. At the federal level, it's harder to to change the overriding uh, structures that might limit a president. Um, Otherwise, I think we'd see, uh, say, uh, this current administration try and change the constitution just to make it harder for Biden to govern at all. They can't do that, but it's a period often of of intense activity. So we often think of lame ducks as periods when you know, basically someone with no power staggers on for a couple of months. But in fact, uh, in in 2010, when the Democrats lost control of Congress, they passed over 100 new laws in the lame duck period. In uh, 2006, when uh, uh, the Republicans lost control of Congress, they passed um, uh, over 100 laws as well. Um, Trump doesn't have the House this time, so he can't push forward major legislation, but what he can push forward are confirmations. And uh, if there are any significant um, vacancies that he wants to fill, uh, he will be empowered to do that because he still is president and still has control of the Senate. Um, and you know, there's speculation, I think it's unlikely, but there's speculation that, say, a member of the Supreme Court, like Clarence Thomas, who's been there since 1991, could retire. And there would be time for uh, for Trump to appoint his uh, successor, for example, if that, you know, if it came to that. And I think the last thing I'll just say is that, you know, um, the lame duck period, the the president has all of his executive powers uh, for two and a half months after he's potentially lost the election. And uh, in this case, you know, that will mean that Trump can make all sorts of changes within the executive branch that at a minimum, Joe Biden will have to spend time undoing when he becomes president. And there are certain things that he's going to, he could do that wouldn't be very difficult for Biden to undo. And uh, the pardon power is one of the most powerful, unchecked powers that a president has. And I think we can anticipate that Donald Trump will be using his pardon power very freely uh, in the weeks to come, potentially right up until the final day, the final hours that he's president. I can imagine him making pardons right up to the, the final hour.
1: And that's not actually unprecedented is it so I mean, we we might fear that's something trump's going to do but other presidents have um issued pardons on the last day in office haven't they
2: yes it's 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 not uh, unique to trump by any any means bill clinton got into some hot water for some more controversial pardons that he made at the end final day of, of his presidency so uh this is this is just that the pardon power is 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 an unusual power because there are so many Powers that Article Two gives to the U.S. President that have some kind of check on them through the legislative branch in the U.S. system, but um, this is one of those that really has no uh, no check, and so there are very few limits on what the president, uh, how the president can use the pardon power. Um, and so, you know, in theory, if Trump, for example, I'm not suggesting he will, but in theory, if Trump wanted to. To sell pardons for hundred thousand dollars a pardon, uh, really, I think the only remedy that Congress would have would be to try and impeach him. Um, so, uh, this is, um, you know, this is something to keep to keep our eye out for. Who is Trump going to pardon, and how extensively is he going to wield the pardon power?
1: And you you talk, though about there being few checks on that power. I mean, one of the things that the U.S. Uh, constitution is is famous for is the the, the checks and balances within the system, um, both between the uh, executive and um, legislative branch, but also uh, there's the power of uh, impeachment, which we've seen used unsuccessfully over the last four years. Are we seeing sort of the the limits of those checks and balances? It's it's often said that the way that the framers of the constitution envisaged the presidency was as a much weaker position. And over the years it's developed into a much more powerful position is it perhaps something which is now demonstrating that when you have somebody who doesn't accept the, the norms of, of politics um, that a lot of these checks and balances actually are ineffective and that if somebody is intent on not abiding by constitutional norms there's very little that others can do to stop them
2: yeah so I think I think there are probably two two aspects to my answer for that the first is on the on this question of the strength of separation of powers. I mean, what we have witnessed is that it's increasingly clear that the separation of parties is much more important than the separation of powers. So if a president can be assured that there is uh, partisan support for the president in the legislative branch or indeed in the judicial branch, then the separation of, of, of powers is almost meaningless. I mean, it's very striking how Little resistance uh, Donald Trump has faced from uh, members of his of his own party uh, over his his presidency, and because something like even impeachment requires that supermajority in the Senate, um, it means that a that even a Senate minority, as long as the president's party controls a third of the Senate, it seems pretty unlikely that impeachment is a is now a if it ever was. A legitimate threat or a realistic threat against a president. And that's somewhat concerning because uh, in terms of the uh, of criminal behavior or other misbehaviors of presidents while they're in office, uh, the judiciary has often argued that um, it has to be uh, the legislative branch that holds the president in check with the threat of impeachment. But if the president can be assured that basically impeachment is an impossibility, uh, as long as a good chunk of their party remains loyal to them, uh, then, then that uh, that enables um, presidents, I think, to push the boundaries a great deal. Um, the second thing I'd say is that, you know, the the growth of the power of the presidency hasn't necessarily been in the growth of the actual formal powers of the president, but it's been in the growth of the size of the executive branch and the responsibilities that actually Congress over the decades has deferred to the President. So, you know, uh, the Constitution, for example, specifies that it's Congress's responsibility to regulate trade between nations, but Congress in the post-war period has passed various acts which have deferred um, that power to the presidency, have transferred up that power over, for example, tariffs to the president, and the president can now impose a number of tariffs Um, if he can find some justification like threat to the United States or threat to a US industry. So actually, Congress has been complicit um, in in transferring over powers to the presidency uh, long before Trump. A lot of this happened um, in the Johnson era and under Carter, for example, but Trump has made good use of them uh, as as president. Um, And in many ways, I think, with the exception of COVID, uh, he's been, and, and I think the Black Lives Matter protests, I think Trump has been exceptionally skilled politically at using the administrative powers of the presidency uh, to appeal to his core constituencies.
1: And you talked then about the separation of parties being more important than the separation of powers, which I think is a, is a really good way of putting it, and we've, we've certainly seen that with with Trump, that where we might have expected the constitutional oversight mechanisms to to kick in they've been completely thwarted by the sort of the sheer partisan nature of the the system at the moment and in previous previous years and previous presidencies um we haven't seen that the only reason that richard nixon was eventually persuaded to resign was because he was going to be impeached and that required the fact that that members of his own party would have voted to to impeach and to remove him from office why do you think that's broken down that there will always be a you know a number of people who will remain utterly loyal, but you would expect there to be when there are impeachment proceedings, some people who would uh, who would break ranks. And we only saw one, we saw Mitt Romney this time. Um, why is that? Why is that extreme partisanship reared its head now in, in the current situation? Yeah,
2: so I mean, if we go back to the Nixon era and and before that, the American political parties were, were much more ideologically heterogeneous than they are now. What we've seen over the last 40, 50 years is what people like Matthew Lewandowski call the partisan sort, where people of of the same sort of ideological outlook now vote the same way in terms of their their party preference. And I mean, for us in the UK and in Europe, programmatic parties have been the norm for quite some time. So it doesn't sound sort of strange that people of the same uh, ideological outlook would vote the same way for a party, but for the US, that's been a race, relatively recent development. And um, that's that's been a major change, I think, because it's, it's limited the ability to have bipartisan agreements, whereas before you have a clutch of liberal Republicans or moderate Republicans and some conservative Democrats or moderate Democrats who could um, forge deals across party lines, that there's just a lot, a lot less agreement now um, among members of the different parties to to, to form those uh, bipartisan agreements. On top of that, after the sorting of the political parties in America, we've also then seen an ideological polarization of the parties so that the ideological, the underlying ideological beliefs of the parties have moved more to the polar extremes. There's some debate about whether that's been a symmetric um, polarization, where both parties have become more extreme, Or if that's asymmetric, as people like uh, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson argue, where the Republican Party has moved more to the right, whereas the Democrats have basically remained sort of in in the center left. There's some debate over that. Um, But what I think helps to explain what we've seen in the Trump era is that uh, elected Republicans um, fell in line with Trump because they knew that Trump, uh, had uh, overwhelming support of the Republican grassroots. And because of the institution of primary elections, uh, many of these elected officials were very concerned that if they uh, position themselves against Trump, that their own, uh, their own um, job would be on the line, that they would potentially face a pro-Trump um, primary challenger and they could lose um could lose their seat we saw actually some of this occur even before trump with the tea party movement under obama where some not particularly liberal republicans sort of center-right republicans um what you know showed some willingness to work with the obama administration they were punished by the republican primary voters for that and i think that you know the incumbent Republican senators and House members are keenly aware of that risk and don't want to uh, to tempt fate on that. And I think that explains the loyalty um, that uh, that we saw uh, under under Trump with the Republican members of Congress.
1: And that explains perhaps why um, they're behaving as they are now in in sort of not congratulating Biden and not acknowledging the, re- the results of the the election. Um, also explains uh, the result of the the impeachment attempt. But how do we get into that position in the first place? How has it been that that this outsider, somebody who was was not a, a Republican um, figure, I, I think he he donated to um, the Democrats in the past. Somebody with no grounding in the Republican Party came from from nowhere and dominated the primary uh, contest in in 2015, 2016. You have the entire Republican Party establishment. Uh, arranged against him, and and he defeated all of them. So you know the the first failure of opposition, as I I spoke about in the podcast last last week, there were various points at which um, opposition failed to stop him. The first of those was the Republican Party. How was he able to, to to come in and defeat all of the the might of the Republican Party in the first place?
2: It's a great question. So the the both the Republicans and Democrats from the 1970s. Uh, started to roll out presidential primaries uh, on a a national scale whereas previously only a handful of states had had primary elections and the political scientist Nelson Poulsby uh, in 1982-83 wrote a book called The Consequences of Party Reform where he warned that by introducing uh, primary elections this would empower the fringe extremes of the grassroots to have an outsized say on the candidates that would get selected for president. And um, what seemed to happen was that Pulsby got it wrong, that for the next two or three decades, the candidates who tended to be the favorite of the party sort of establishment, uh, were also the candidates that the party, party grassroots voted for in the primary elections. And this was an observation made by some students of Pulseby in a book in 2008 called The Party Decides, The Party Establishment Decides Effectively. Trump obviously defied that um, expectation. And one of the authors of The Party Decides book, Hans Knoll wrote an article after Trump's nomination called The Activist Decides. And in that Knoll says that the, the problem was that in 2016, the party establishment failed to coordinate around a single challenger to Trump. So normally the way that the party decides is the party establishment decides during the so-called invisible primary period to support a particular candidate. Endorsements go to that candidate, money goes to that candidate, and it's very clearly signaled to the grassroots voters who uh, is sort of the favored candidate. In 2016, there were sharp divisions between supporters of Jeb Bush supporters of Marco Rubio, supporters of John Kasich. You had Ted Cruz who refused to get out of the race. And so because of the electoral system that was being used for the primaries where many states had a winner-take-all electoral system, Trump could win a majority of delegates without securing, um, at least in the early stages before everyone basically gave up, a majority of um, of the primary votes. So Trump was winning these states, but only sometimes with only a third of the vote. Um, so it was a failure of co- coordination among the Republican elites. But it's, it wasn't just that. The other important uh, point to observe is that Trump reflected the policy preferences of the Republican grassroots much more closely than many of the other candidates running for president in 2016. That. If you look at survey evidence about Republican voters' attitudes on trade and immigration, they had already shifted in the Trump direction before Trump became candidate. Um, and so he was sort of hunting where the ducks were, um, which is another article about this. Uh, it's the title of the, another article about this. Um, so it was he was pushing on an open door. He probably could have been stopped if the establishment had coordinated better against him, but their failure to do that Plus, that he represented where the voters were made it made it possible for him to win the nomination in 2016.
1: So it's really a, um, a failure of opposition by the opposition being divided, um, effectively. And and then once he becomes the the nominee, uh, you then know, head, head into the general election. The next opportunity for him to be stopped is is by the voters themselves. And of course, he wasn't. And. Uh, all the polls expecting Hillary Clinton to be successful proved to be wrong, and and he he pulled off this astonishing victory. How do we explain that? I mean, there have been literally books written about about that. But what's your take on that? Is it the same thing that he he appealed to a, a certain ideological view amongst swing voters? Um, was it a problem with Hillary Clinton as the candidate? Combination of both things. What's what's your take on uh, on that old question?
2: I mean, I think it is a combination those things i mean a couple of the things that i would point out i mean i think first of all i think hillary clinton ran a bad campaign i think that her campaign was premised on an assumption that it could replicate the 2012 obama coalition and the 2012 obama coalition is quite a fascinating one because um obama in 2012 uh actually did worse among white voters than he did in in 2008. Um, In fact, Obama was elected in 2012 with the lowest share of the two-party support among whites um, uh, ever in in American history. And so his election in 2012 was creditable to an exceptionally high support uh, that he received from voters of color, particularly African-Americans, not only in terms of high levels of support, but also high turnout. And the Clinton campaign believed that they could could effectively do that again. And I think that was mistaken. I felt at the time that was probably mistaken because I think that the exceptionally high turnout that Obama received from African-Americans was not likely to be easily replicated by Hillary Clinton. In 2012, black turnout was higher than white turnout for the first time since the post-Civil War era. And I think that was because of the unique and special role that Barack Obama held for many African-Americans as as the first black president that Hillary Clinton was just not going to uh, replicate. Um, On top of that, Hillary Clinton did even worse among white voters than uh, Barack Obama did. And I think that was partly, there was a strategic error from her campaign to shore up some of the support, particularly among Midwestern whites. Uh, not a huge, not a huge number. I think sometimes that number can be overstated, but there was a failure um, to, to speak to those voters there. The third thing that I would just emphasize is that that election had a unusually high proportion of third party voting, for particularly for the Libertarian and the Green parties, but also for uh, independents, the independent candidate Evan McMullen stood in in some states in that election and we know that the third party vote in 2016 was very likely what deprived Hillary Clinton of her electoral college majority in the key states that she lost in in Michigan Wisconsin and Pennsylvania Um, and so she wasn't helped by that and I think that that high level of third party support was partly driven by the fact that Hillary Clinton uh, after Donald Trump was the most unpopular Presidential candidate uh, in American history. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there are lots of reasons, some fair, some unfair, about why that was the case. But I, there were some unique factors around Clinton and her campaign that I think helped to explain that loss.
1: So, again, part of it appears to have been division of opposition that um, the third party vote, as you say, in those key states, um, was enough to deprive her of, of those electoral votes. But that brings us on to the Electoral College. And of course, you know, we must remember that Hillary Clinton didn't lose the popular vote. She, she won it by three million more than, than Trump. And we've seen, again, discussion uh, in this election. You've got, um, I think, as, as it currently stands, over five million more voters having voted for Joe Biden than, than Trump. And yet, in, in, in some states, it's still on, on a knife edge. So it's a, it's a question that comes up time and time again. Is it time to uh, to abolish the Electoral College? What, what purpose does it serve now?
2: Yeah, I mean, the Electoral College was, you know, designed before an era of mass democracy. And so the, you know, there are lots of different reasons why the Electoral College was brought about. But one of them was, you know, a view that uh, and that's actually an assumption that more often than not, the president of the United States would be selected by the House of Representatives, much closer to a parliamentary uh, system. And indeed, that is still a possibility where if a candidate fails to secure an absolute majority of electoral college votes, then the House of Representatives does decide the president. And at the time when the electoral college was brought about, it was Uh, designed in the 1780s uh, given a slight update in the early 19th century and basically kept the same since, uh, it was viewed that it was very unlikely that you'd have many elections where a candidate would secure an absolute majority of electoral college votes, not least because of the challenges of communication, but also an assumption that politics would be structured around regional um, ties rather than sort of these national party coalitions that ended up um, emerging. So the, uh, the the actual college was, you know, designed in an era of politics which is extraordinarily unfamiliar to us today. I think that there is very little justification on um, sort of basic small D democratic grounds for preserving it uh, today. Um, there are many. Um, uh, Perverse outcomes that an electoral coll- the, the electoral college system uh, can produce. You know, Biden won this election. It seems by over five million votes, but if sixty thousand votes in a few key states had gone differently, Donald Trump would have won the presidency. Uh, this is something that I warned about before the election. That actually, because of the way that the electoral college plays out at the moment, certain states uh, like California are exceptionally underrepresented by the Electoral College. And this happens to be a state that the Democrats are doing very well in. So the more that California grows, it's now 40 million people. Um, The more that it becomes Democratic, uh, uh, big D Democratic, uh, the more likely we are to see these um, skewed election outcomes where the Democrats will continue to win a majority of the national vote. Um, But the, the, the Republicans have a much Better chance at winning the electoral college,
1: and it also one of the perverse outcomes I think is is that you have the complete neglect of of states other than swing states during a presidential election. You know, a vote in uh, in California is much less important than a, than a vote in Pennsylvania, for example, in a presidential election. If the electoral college were to be abolished and it were to be the popular vote that determined the outcome. There will be many more pathways to the presidency um, in the in the um, in the term that's that's often used. Uh, it wouldn't be a case of sort of doing the the jigsaw of trying to piece together electoral college votes. It would be a, a case that votes across the entire country would would, would count the same. Um, is is that a problem that that you you have many states that simply are not given enough attention during a presidential election at the moment?
2: Yeah. So I mean, the, the electoral college system already underweights populous states so california is uh, about 68 times larger than the most the least populous state wyoming but it's only got about 18 times the number of electoral college votes so uh, a vote in a, in a low population state um is going to count more in terms of electoral college votes per capita than in a large population state but then partisan competitiveness adds to this so because Every state in America awards 100% of its electoral college votes to the plurality winner in the state. You only need to win a state by one vote to win 100% of its electoral college votes. So states that have um, are, are much more competitive uh, internally uh, get all of the attention. You know, Hillary Clinton won California by, I believe I'm doing this off the top of my head, but four and a half million votes in 2016, she only needed one, a majority of one vote to uh, win all 55 of California's electoral votes in the Electoral College. So effectively, four and a half million Clinton supporters in California could have stayed home and it would have had no impact on the Electoral College map. It would have had an impact on the popular vote because it would have meant Trump would have won the popular vote. But um, in terms of Electoral College, it would have had uh, no difference whatsoever. What well, I will say is, you know, if you if you abolish the electoral college, as I think is there's a strong democratic, small d democratic reason for doing so, you know, it, it will throw up some other challenges. So there's an argument that it could make elections more, ev- even more expensive in America, because rather than focusing resources on a small number of states, candidates would have to f- basically appeal to national audiences, which means that you know they're going to have to be running adverts not just in Pennsylvania and Michigan, but also in New York State um, and in you know uh, Idaho potentially. You know, so, so there would be new facets that this w- this would throw up, and you know it's it's um, it's not a panacea for any by any measure. But I think that in terms of the values that we tend to broadly accept as, as as small d Democrats in the world today, the principle of one person, one vote, um, a, a nationally based presidential election is much more justifiable than the electoral college system.
1: And if we move on to looking at the, the way that the Democrats responded to um, their defeat in the presidential election in 2016, you had four years of Trump basically behaving in the way that people predicted that he would, and all of the things that uh, Hillary Clinton had said during the campaign um, about his unsuitability, arguably those things were entirely demonstrated over the four years of, of his presidency, and yet at no point was he stopped, we talked about the, the fail- failure of the impeachment process, but also you know, he was, he's been enabled by Republicans in, in Congress throughout that period. And there's been a lack of institutional pushback from people within the executive branch as well. So do we see there a, a failure, not just of the party system, but also of of sort of basic constitutional checks in terms of the, the power of the office? And, and, and how do you think that the Democrats uh, managed that? Certainly for the first two years until they won the House, they were pretty powerless Um, in terms of uh, of opposing him. How how do you think they handled um, this unprecedented challenge of of opposing a a president of uh, of Trump's sort?
2: I think what the Trump presidency shows is um, a kind of vindication of this theory that people like uh, Sid Milkus at the University of Virginia have been talking about, which is executive-centered partisanship. Uh, And this, this basically refers to how national parties are increasingly contracting out partisan campaigning to the the executive branch. Uh, And in particular, uh, an institution within the executive branch called the Executive Office of the President, which was created during the Roosevelt administration, um, where the president has a bureaucracy of about 4,000 people who report to him directly rather than to the executive branch agencies and are there to support the president's agenda. So national parties look at this and think, actually, this is very convenient for us, that policy development, the promotion of policies, promotion of ideas that um, we support and so on as a party, uh, those can be done not by the Republican National Committee, uh, but they can actually be done through the White House itself. And you can see that the communication tools that Trump used and the policy development that Trump pursued through the executive branch uh, was very sophisticated, I think, in promoting um, the Republican agenda, not only setting what the agenda would be, but actually helping to carry it out uh, through the executive branch. And we saw this actually with Obama as well, where increasingly the, the DNC and Democrats more generally were comfortable with Obama using the executive branch to help to bring about executive uh, democratic policy priorities and Trump has only intensified that. Um, it also makes it difficult for the opposition party in the legislative branch to restrict the president's policy uh, agenda because much of what Trump achieved in terms of policy terms was not achieved through normal legislation but was achieved through Uh, his control over the executive branch through executive orders and other tools of the administrative uh, presidency. Um, So, yes, the Democrats winning the House two years ago limited Trump's ability to pass policy in uh, legislation rather. Um, But Trump has actually not really shown a great deal of interest in legislation anyway, even when the Republicans held um, the House really beyond the um, tax cuts in his first year as president, he was not particularly interested in legislating. He actually seemed to prefer using his executive powers to bring about a degree of policy uh, change. I think that the Biden administration is going to carry that pattern forward. I think that legislatively, the Biden administration is not going to get much done, frankly, Um, and so The way that Biden um, pursues any creditable policy achievements is very likely to be through uh, the executive branch, not least overturning a great deal of what Trump did. But I think he'll also try and pursue some new policy initiatives uh, through the uh, administrative presidency.
1: And you, you talked, though, about the the challenges that uh, Joe Biden's going to face as president. It looks as though he's unlikely to have control of the Senate, um, although there are a couple of um, Senate races um, still, still to come. Assuming that he doesn't and that uh, it remains Republican and given all, everything we know about the, the extreme partisanship that, that now exists, what are the challenges to him? I mean, he's going to face significant opposition there. He's also potentially going to be facing opposition from... The, the former president who hopes to return to office, there's there's talk of Trump seeking to stand again in the next election. What's your view of the, the likely challenges facing Biden in terms of the, the opposition, both from within the Congress and also potentially outside it? I think the
2: failure to, to for the Democrats to capture the Senate is, is, is really significant um, because you know the, one of the first things that a president has to do is to appoint members of the executive branch not least their cabinet when they when they get uh, into office and the constitution requires that executive branch appointments have to get senate confirmation they have to be signed off by the senate and we haven't seen uh, an example of a newly elected president uh, entering office without a senate majority in his first 100 days since George H.W. Bush in 1989. And that was, as I alluded to earlier, a period of a higher degree of bipartisanship because of the lack of ideological coherence, although it was sharpening up by that point uh, in, in the two parties. So we've not actually seen really an example of a newly elected president with highly sorted and polarized parties where the president lacks control of the Senate. This means that if the Republicans in the Senate, if they indeed hold the Senate with the two Georgia uh, Senate races, could potentially make it extraordinarily difficult for Biden to govern even through the executive branch, not least because they could block him from putting anyone in his cabinet. Um, you know, I mean, if they really wanted to push it, they could force Biden to basically ask Trump's previous appointees to stay in office because he wouldn't be able to get in any of his own. Um, now, I think that's unlikely because I think there are uh, a, a couple, really two or three Republican senators who wouldn't wish to countenance doing that. Uh, but it means that Republican senators, those moderate Republican senators, Mitt Romney, Lisa Mikowski, Susan Collins, are the gatekeepers of Biden's administration. And really anyone that Joe Biden wants to appoint to the executive branch or indeed the judiciary will need to get their sign off and so it limits the type of people that joe biden can put in his cabinet now that makes might suit joe biden who's a more moderate figure and uh it gives him an excuse uh, you know a, a legitimate or an actual excuse for not putting left-wing people like elizabeth warren uh, and bernie sanders into his administration but that could also cause problems for him because that the House Democratic majority looks like it's going to be shrunk from two years ago. And that means that the very left wing elements of the House Democratic caucus are gonna be gatekeepers of their own in terms of what can get through the House. Uh, so he's in a situation where he needs to appeal to moderate Republicans in the Senate. And he also needs to keep sweet the left Democrats in the House if he wants to get really anything through in a bipartisan way uh, through the, I'm sorry, in in a bicameral way through both houses, legislatively.
1: What are the lessons that we've learned from the sort of the the Trump experience in terms of of checks and balances in in the US constitution? We've we've talked about the electoral college, talks about impeachment. What do you think needs to be done to to sort of learn from some of the um, issues that we faced over the last four, five years? Uh, in terms of, of of the American Constitution, is there anything that, that that you think needs to be looked at urgently?
2: Well, I mean, there are all sorts of structural reforms. Where, if I could wave my magic wand, uh, I, I personally think that the that the Senate is a, is a is a pernicious institution. Uh, you know, if I had my way, I would probably abolish the Senate or at least pass some kind of constitutional amendment that um, weakened its powers. So for example, transferring the confirmation powers from the Senate to the House. The Senate is uh, very unusual, so uh, it's even worse than the Electoral College in that uh, voters of California are even uh, more disadvantaged in the the Senate. There are some territorial legislatures around the world that are disproportionate in reflection of um, population differences. None, none as much as the Senate. But those territorial legislatures, like in Germany or Australia, uh, tend to be weaker than the lower chamber. Whereas in the US, it's the Senate is the stronger chamber. You know, if there was to be a constitutional amendment, at the very least, would be to weaken the power of the Senate. I think the other thing that we have not talked about, but is going to be a very significant source of opposition for a Biden presidency, um, is, is the courts. And I think that um, Donald Trump has been extraordinarily effective in filling in federal courts with uh, nominees who are, who are exceptionally conservative, uh, compared to even nominees that were put forward by previous Republicans. In the final two years of Barack Obama's presidency, he only managed to get 20 judges. Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, basically blocked him from doing that. And the most famous example is he couldn't get on the Supreme Court, but there are many federal lower courts that he couldn't fill either. Trump has filled over 225, I think last time I checked, of those vacancies. And that will be Trump's most enduring legacy. Uh, These judges will sit on the court for 20, 30, uh, even longer years. And um, they, because of judicial supremacy in the United States, they will have the power to strike down legislation that uh, otherwise comm- potentially could command uh, wide majority support in the country. And if I had a, an institutional reform that I could make in the American system, uh, it would be to weaken the power of the courts. It doesn't look like that's uh, that's on the cards, but I think that the Biden administration could soon find itself facing not only challenges of getting legislation through Congress, but also actions that Biden then pursues as president being hampered by uh, by the Supreme Court interventions. But I think my expectation is that the Biden presidency is likely to be a very weakened presidency uh, because of those two institutional uh, constraints. So again, it goes down to the separation of parties, not powers.
1: Great, well, thanks very much, Richard, for joining us. And we'll see what happens over um, the next few months, whether we have a, a smooth and peaceful transition or probably not, but thanks very much for joining us.
2: Thanks very much for having me.
1: My thanks again to Richard Johnson for joining me on the podcast to talk about the fallout from the US elections and the events of the last four years. And it's interesting to move on at the end of our discussion to looking ahead to the potential problems and issues that Joe Biden is going to face when he assumes the presidency. And I'm sure that's an issue that we'll be returning to in future. And who knows, by then Donald Trump may even have finally conceded defeat. But for now, that's all we've got time for. I'll be back soon with another edition of the podcast. But for now, for me, thanks for joining me. Look after yourselves, and I'll see you soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. You can follow us at Facebook at Opposition Studies, Twitter at Opposition UK, and online at oppositionstudies.net. Thank you